Well, today we'll see, and not just today, but in the weeks to come, that when a person becomes a Christian, when someone becomes a believer, a follower of Christ, relationships change for them. Relationships with one another, with our spouses change, relationships with children, relationships in the workplace, and relationships with the world are different. When a person repents of his sin and and, and trusts in the work of Jesus to forgive their sin and to save them and to reconcile them and to uh, redeem them, they are transformed because the Spirit of God, the Word of God tells us, comes to live within that person. Something happens. There's a transformation that goes on in their life. To be exact, the Holy Spirit of God. Did you hear that? What Spirit? The Holy Spirit. That's just not some arbitrary name that God chose to give to His Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit of God comes to live within the repentant sinner. The Holy Spirit living in a person results in a Spirit-controlled life. Beginning here in verse 18 of chapter 5, Paul tells the Christians the source of healthy relationships is the Holy Spirit. And I know for us Baptists, we get kind of weirded out when somebody even mentions the Holy Spirit. If they say Holy Ghost, we really get nervous when they, when they use that phrase. It just kind of weirds us out. And for whatever reason, I have no idea. There's no aspect more important in our pursuit to be like Jesus, in our pursuit to imitate God as we've been called to do, in our pursuit to be different from the world, in our pursuit to be in the world but not of the world. There's no factor more important in that pursuit and the filling of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. My point to you is, I was trying to be funny earlier about being scared of the Holy Spirit. We, don't not, we do not need to be scared of what lives within us. We have God living in us through His Holy Spirit, and we need that Spirit. The focus of chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 is not, listen to me, is not don't get drunk. That's not the focus of this passage. A lot of people like to go there to argue for that, and I'm not going to deny that. Don't, don't, we'll talk about that just briefly, but that's not the focus of this passage. The focus of these verses, anybody want to guess what the focus is? Being filled with the Spirit. That's the focus. So if you're looking at your handout, you see the main idea there. That's when believers are filled with the Spirit. Verse 18. Quite simple, outlining that. Be filled with the Spirit. And he says, the Holy Spirit does, to the Apostle Paul, to us, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Last week we saw in verses 17 through 18, there's this idea of being wise and not living foolishly. We talked about that last week. Wise, we said, equals Christian, someone who's born again. Being foolish equals someone who's lost, someone who denies that there's a God, someone who is unregenerate, someone who's never been born again. The wise person, in verse 17, the Christian does not get drunk by alcohol. Or, for that matter, anything else, but he is to be what? Filled with the Spirit. And let me say this, we're going to talk just briefly about this. I'm not going to make it the point of the passage, because that's not the point of the passage. But to get drunk is a sin. There, your pastor said that. To get drunk is a sin. Why? 
Because it is never God's will for a Christian to be drunk. Just to remind us, again, the main focus of these verses is being filled with the Spirit. Not the issue of drinking alcohol, even though I think it is very unwise to drink alcohol. In particular, the Bible says, don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. That's, that's pretty clear, right? Don't do that. But the main idea here is being filled with the Spirit. And we're going to point that out twice. That is the main point versus not getting drunk. But what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? That would be a good question to ask, right? Some of you are sitting there going, okay, what does, what does that mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, here's what it means. It means to be controlled by. Quite simple. To be controlled by. That word filled there means to be saturated. Listen. Or it means to be intoxicated. Ah, oh, you think that word was chosen by accident? To go along with what's being said here? Be filled, be controlled, be saturated, be intoxicated. And to help us understand that, what does Paul do? He compares and contrasts being filled with the Spirit and being drunk with alcohol. Because we know alcohol does what? It intoxicates us. The comparison is that both drunkenness and filled with the Spirit indicate being under the influence. That's the title. Under the influence. You're either under the influence of alcohol, wine, or you're under the influence of the Spirit. That's where these two are similar. The exhortation, don't get drunk with wine, is a call to the believer not to allow his mind to be controlled by a substance. Don't, don't let that happen. Alcohol controls a person's mind without a doubt his actions, which usually end up being what? Sinful or foolish. The contrast here comes in the nature of the influence. That's what Paul is doing. That's why I say it's not about primarily alcohol, it's about being filled with the Spirit, but he's making the comparison here. You've seen someone drunk, right? Intoxicated, under the influence, controlled by that. So therefore... Be filled with the Spirit. And here's how these are similar. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a former medical doctor turned uh, preacher, theologian, pastor. And you've heard me say before, man, that really had to be a call of God to, to go away from being a doctor to become a pastor. But here's what he says. Alcohol is a depressant that affects the higher function of the brain. To which we would say, yes. It takes away your self-control, your wisdom, your understanding, your judgment, and your balance. Basically, it leads to a loss of self-control. The nature of the influence of alcohol is the loss of what? Control. We, We lose control. Therefore, don't get drunk. But the influence of the Spirit, instead of being a depressant, the Spirit what? Stimulates. See the comparison Paul's making there? The influence of the Spirit leads to self-control, not loss of control. The result of the influence in our lives, notice of this alcohol, notice the importance here, the result of the influence of drunk with wine leads to, what's that big word? Most of us probably never heard of that word. Debauchery. And you're going, I can't say it, much less know what it means. Some of you have translations that read, wherein excess or dissipation, or reckless actions. Debauchery means to be out of control. That's simply what that word means. A person who becomes drunk then becomes out of control in their life. But a person, and here's the contrast, here's the point, when a person is filled with the Spirit, they're 
under the control of the Spirit because they are filled then with wisdom. Instead of losing wisdom, they are filled with wisdom. So here's the question. How are you filled with the Spirit? What was the first question? What does it mean? It means to be what? Under the control. That prevailing in your life, guiding your life, intoxicating your life, being controlled by that. So here's another question that you may have. Okay, I know what that is, but how am I filled with the Spirit? Look at verse 18. It says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, here's something we, we need to understand. This phrase is in the present tense. Which means, listen to me carefully, this is not an event. Okay? This is not an event. Paul dealt with the event back in chapter 1, verse 13. Look back there with me. Chapter 1, verse 13 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the event when you heard the truth of the gospel which led to your salvation and you believed in Jesus. What does it say happened? You were sealed. You were secured at that point with the promised Holy Spirit. Believing in Jesus results in being sealed with the Spirit of God. At the point of salvation, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within a believer. So therefore, verse 18 is not talking about that. It's not the event. The event's in chapter 1, verse 13. So let's go back to verse 18 of chapter 5. Again, this is in the present tense, and it's a command. Now, what do we mean by command? Do this. It's that simple. Do this. It's not an option. The Spirit of God is saying, be filled with me. Do this. It's in the present tense and it's a command. After salvation, the Christian is commanded as a follower of Jesus, present tense, to be filled with the Spirit. You're commanded to do that. To be filled with the Spirit. To be controlled by. To be intoxicated with the Spirit of God. And by the way, the present tense here means this. It means keep on being filled. Keep on. Be filled, but... Keep on being filled. It's not just special occasions. It's it's something we should experience on a continual basis. It's an ongoing condition so that the person may be characterized as being full of the Spirit. Thus, that would be a good command to obey, right? Keep on pursuing. Keep on being filled with the Spirit of God. It describes a person who, who habitually lives with every area of his life under the control of the Spirit. The Bible is pretty clear. If you'll remember back in chapter 4, verse 30, it mentions something about the Holy Spirit there. And what did it tell us? Do not what? Grieve the Holy Spirit. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, Do not quench the Spirit. You know, the word quench it has the idea of extinguishing a fire. The Spirit of God lives within you, so therefore don't do things that would suppress or Put out that fire or, or put it down. Don't grieve. That word grieve means the Holy Spirit is He's a person. You can't grieve an object, right? You can only grieve a person. So we, we're not to grieve. We're not to quench the Spirit. But we're to what? Be filled with the Spirit. Both of these quenching and grieving hinder a godly lifestyle. Don't do those things. 
There's something else interesting about this phrase. It's present tense, and it means to be filled and continuously being filled, pursuing a life of constantly being filled with the Spirit. But this phrase is also passive, meaning that this is something that actually happens to you. The Christian is commanded to do something that happens to them from the outside. And right now you're going, now wait a minute. How in the world can the Christian be commanded to do something that actually happens to them from the outside? That's a good question to ask, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 5. If you want to turn there, Romans chapter 8, verse 5, if you just prefer to listen, make a note, look later on. How can we be commanded to do something on a continuous basis that happens to us from the outside? How do we do that? Romans chapter 8, verse 5. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Listen to what it says. If you set your mind on the things of the flesh... uh, Again, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but that's not talking about skin and bones. It's talking about our sinful nature. Okay? If you set your mind on your sinful nature, you will live according to what, church? You'll live according to what? Your sinful nature. You set your mind on that, you're going to live according to that. But if you fill your mind with the things of the Spirit, you'll be what? Filled with the Spirit, and you'll live as a person who is what? Filled with the Spirit. You get the point here? You set your mind on the old nature, the the flesh, and you'll do what? You'll fulfill those things. You set your mind on the things of the Spirit, and you'll be filled. To set your mind on the things of the Spirit means to relate all of life to God and His Word. That's what that means. All of life. Nothing gets left out. Everything's related to God and His Word. It means to develop a biblical worldview. To the point where you think about and process all of life through the lens of the Bible. How much of life? All of it. And we're going to see that coming up here. Marriage, children, work relationships. All of life is to be filtered through the Bible. Set your mind on that. Some of you, and when I say you, I'm talking about professing Christians, are frustrated... Because you can't seem to live for Jesus. We've all been there, right? It's because you're filling your mind with, listen, garbage. That's why we get in that position. We're filling our minds with garbage. You heard the old saying in? I heard the old saying, garbage in, garbage out, right? That's what happens. You're filling your mind with things of the flesh. The command here is that you be filled with what? The Spirit. Live Those who live according to the Spirit refers to those who are born again. You, saved person, set your mind, fill your mind with the things of the Spirit. That's what you're supposed to do. That's your part, right? And how do we do that? We relate all of life, everything we do, and a biblical worldview, everything we think about, everything we choose to do, how we use our money, how we raise our children, how we uh, have our marriage relationships, how we relate to other people, is to be filtered through what? The Bible. 
Fill your mind with the things of the Spirit and you'll be filled with the Spirit. But here's where the passive comes in. Remember I said it's something you do, you have to do, you're commanded to do, but it happens from the outside. Here's where the passive comes in. As you're filling your mind with the things of the Spirit, the Spirit does His work in your heart and life, which affects how you live. Do you see that? The Spirit will not work in your life unless He can work through what means? The Word of God. He cannot work in your... He may be living in you, but you may be grieving and quenching Him because you're not filling your life with this. And again, I've been saying this for the last several weeks, and all preachers say this. We've been making jokes about it. Read your Bible. Understand who your Savior is. Fill your mind with things of the Bible, and God will fill you with His Spirit. It affects how you live. That's how the Spirit fills you. That's how He works in you. He'll not work in you in any other way. You can't sit back and never read your Bible and think that the Spirit of God is just going to show up one day and blow across you and you're going to be this extraordinary, mature Christian. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to be filled with the Spirit. So, if you're drunk with wine and it leads to being out of control than to be under control by the Spirit. When the Christian is under the control of the Spirit, they live godly. And here's what I want to say. If you're not living godly, you're living outside of that, you're not filled with the Spirit. You're living ungodly. That's because you've set your mind on the things that are ungodly, things of the the natural self, things of the flesh. So in verses... 19 through 21, as we, as we move there, he tells us first, be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. We do that. But it's something that happens to us from the outside. Our part is, is we filter our lives through the Word of God, and then the Spirit of God, what? Takes that Word and He works in us. He fills us to where we can live the life that God's called us to live. But notice in verses 19 through 21, we see how the Spirit, Spirit-filled believer is a person who lives in right relationship with God and right relationship with the Christian community. There's going to be some interesting ways that we see that happen here. Verses 19 through 21, the results of being filled with the Spirit. First of all, there's biblical, heartfelt worship. That's how we relate to one another. Notice in verse 19, this is a result of being filled with the Spirit. Remember, how are we filled with the Spirit? We saturate ourselves with the Word of God and the Spirit of God fills us. He intoxicates our life to where we live under the control of the flesh. And then here's a result. Biblical heartfelt worship. Verse 19. <clears throat> Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That word address there, some of you may have a translation that says speaking, means to what? What do you do when you speak? To someone, you communicate to them, right? You're, you're passing something along. And here the communication is done through what means church? Through singing. The idea here is that of corporate worship. We communicate to one another and to God in our singing. Notice verse 19 says that we do this in Psalms. This refers to the Old Testament psalms that are put to music. Okay, they're songs that we sing today. 
If you look carefully at the top, there may be a, a reference there that says Psalm whatever. That's where that song came from. Why the Psalms? Why do you think we should be singing the Psalms? What do the Psalms do? They point us to who? God. They point us to the nature and the work of God. In other words, songs that are based on Scripture. Songs that are based on what? The Bible. Addressing one another in songs. What's the next thing? We address one another in what? Hymns. Most Bible scholars believe this is referring to the New Testament. Passages like Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 through 16. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. Again, songs based on doctrine, songs based on Scripture. If you go to Colossians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 2, if you're familiar with that, your mind should be thinking those passages are specifically talking about Jesus. Sing hymns, sing those songs. Then we're to sing what? Spiritual songs. The idea is that of songs that come from the heart. Listen, a spirit-filled heart. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 shows that to be filled with God's Spirit is closely related to being filled with the Word. So it would be songs that communicate the truth of the Bible. It would be songs that communicate more than one truth from the Bible in the same song. So all three of these are biblical ways through singing that we together worship the Lord. Our singing should be based on what, church? The Scriptures. It should be based on the Bible. It should be based on God's Word. And our singing has both a horizontal and a vertical effect. How you sing, what you sing affects who? The people you gather with. And listen to me, this is just thrown in for free. Here's what I've come to realize. People learn more theology in a song than they do a sermon. Work all week, prepare a sermon, and people can sing a three minute song and they have more theology than what you... It just don't make sense to preachers, but it's true. You learn more theology through a song than you do a sermon. And here's the problem. You can learn bad theology in a song. You know how quick we can learn a song? Man, we can hear it once or twice and we got it, right? But that's how bad stuff gets in here. We sing songs that have bad theology. Our singing should be based on the Bible. should be based on God. And our singing should have this horizontal effect and a vertical effect. Notice the phrase there, addressing one another. You hear that? Addressing one another. We're singing these songs based on God and His Word and what He is in the Bible. And we're singing those to who? One another. That's why it's important we're here, right? Because we sing to one another. And notice we also answer the Lord. There's a communication to one another. And there's a communication to the Lord. By the way, if you're communicating to the Lord, you don't want to communicate what? Bad theology. Because God knows what He's about. And when we sing bad stuff about Him, that is not pleasing to Him. That communication is done through singing. The activity of singing should be worship to God. Notice what it says there. I love this part. I'm an idiot when it comes to music. Some of you are going, I know that. Making melody to the Lord. How? With your heart. 
Now listen to me. This is not a matter of having a bubbly personality. Because many of us don't have one of those, right? Here's what this means. The Spirit takes the Word of God and engages your heart to the point where you're making melody in your heart. Now listen carefully. Melody here is not referring to music. The word melody, in my ignorance, I had to look it up. There was a time when I sang in the choir. Notice I said, I don't sing, I sang. And the choir director would always say, Gary, sing the melody. I'd go, I don't know who this melody girl is, but we're to be singing. I had no idea. All I knew was open the book and let her fly. Sing the melody, Gary. Here's what Webster says. It's a sequence of single notes that is musically satisfying. Some of you are laughing. You know what the key word there is, right? Satisfying. That's what melody means. But melody here refers to singing that honors, exalts, and glorifies. Singing that satisfies and pleases God. You know that's why it tells us to make a joyful noise. If you're singing theology, that's, if you're singing songs that are good theology, God don't care how you sound. You can, you can sing like Elvis. Some of you younger folks are going, who's that? You can sing like Elvis and sing bad theology. You know what God does? Put your, he don't really do that, but He doesn't listen to you. <laughs> Our singing is also for ministering to one another. You, when you worship through singing, listen to me, you should be concerned about other people. The way you're singing, listen to me, the expression on your face, the way you respond is communicating to others that I love Jesus. And some of us need to tell our face what's going on in our heart. Because it's just not communicating. If you love Jesus, your face ought to show that when we're gathered here singing. And I'm not talking about acting out of control and drawing attention to yourself. Some of you have come to me at times and said, you know, there's been times, Pastor, in the service where I just kind of got, you know, something kind of got going on in here. And I just thought about maybe I just, I just raised my hand, but I was worried about what someone else might think about me. Can I tell you something? If you're raising your hand toward God, God don't care about what everybody else thinks about you. And listen, I'm not talking about getting out of control and running up down the aisles and running around the building and coming back. That's, that's foolishness. I'm talking about praise that is directed toward God that exalts and worships Him. So if you want to raise your hand at times, that's not going to bother me at all. If it bothers someone else, it bothers someone else. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. It says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Listen, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How do you prepare for corporate worship? According to this verse here, it says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the truth of Scripture saturate your soul. Then, it says, you will be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, because you've been reading the Scriptures, and singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Listen, 
we are teaching and we're encouraging one another and we're correcting one another when we sing. That's why it's important we all sing and we all listen. Because singing is intended to teach, it's intended to encourage, it's intended to correct us. Example. Are you ready? Psalm, I mean, hymn 105 this morning. Remember us singing that? Do you remember? Marvelous grace of our saving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Darkness is a stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide. Marvelous, infinite Excuse me. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. All who are longing to see His face. Will you this moment His grace receive? What's that song talking about? Is it talking about theology that comes from the Bible? Absolutely. The blood of Jesus and being set free from sin. It's singing about the Gospel. So as we sing, we're to be reminding each other of the gospel. Maybe those who, who came this morning who are discouraged, you're struggling. And then you hear God's people sing about the gospel. What does that do to you? Can I tell you as the pastor, there's been mornings I showed up here and I just didn't I just didn't have it. You know what I mean, right? And we sing a song that says, Look, Gary, there's the cross. Look, Gary, there's, there's the blood of the Savior. Look, there's Calvary. It set you free. Yeah, you got problems, but look at Jesus. Look to the cross. That always encourages my heart. Maybe someone came here today and you're lost. Maybe people come in here week after week lost. And they're hearing God's people sing and they're hearing and they're thinking, you know these people really believe this thing called the gospel because they sing about it. And look at their faces. They must believe that. It affects them. What we do here on Sunday is impacting people in one way or the other. Here's how I want you to apply this. Did you know that you have a responsibility in corporate worship? Everyone who names the name of Jesus has a responsibility. You are not here. Listen, and I'm going to say this nicely. You are not here to be entertained. You are here to encourage and instruct other believers with your singing. That's what you're here for. And listen, you must view corporate worship as important. This is important. What we do here is extremely important. This is very clear from this passage, is it not? Here's why I say it's important for you to be here. The logic of this. If you're not here, you can't do what verse 19 says do. And if this is a command, you've got to be here to do it. Notice secondly, being filled with the Spirit results in continual gratitude to God. Verse 20, giving thanks. What's the next word? Read along with me. Let's wake up. Read along with me. Giving thanks when? Always. And for? Everything. 
everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When do we give thanks? Always and for everything. Here's the, the definition of thanksgiving. Grateful acknowledgement of benefits received. Grateful acknowledgement of benefits received. According to this passage, you're acknowledging that God the Father is the source and the primary cause of all your benefits. Which means you and I can't take credit for what? Anything. We owe it all to God. And I know I've said this, and I know what some of you think. I've worked hard for what I have. How many of you ever said that? I've worked hard for what I've got. Let me ask you this. Who gave you the strength to work? Who gave you the brain to figure it out? Who gave you the job that you've got? You need to understand that God is the source and you cannot take credit for anything. Thank you. As a result of being filled with the Spirit is a heart that is thankful to the Father in all things. To the extent that we grumble and complain and whine, we are not living under the Spirit's control. Are you known for continual thanksgiving to God? Are you known to be one of those who complain, grumble, or pout, or whine, or cry all the time? This this passage here says that we're not filled with the Spirit if that's us. When Paul was beaten and thrown in prison in the book of Acts chapter 16, what did he do? What did they do in jail that night? They sang praises to the Lord. When he was imprisoned in Rome and the believers there were slandering him, what was he wrote to the Philippians and said? Always giving thanks for all things. You may be thinking, does this mean that we're supposed to give thanks when I lose one of my children or my spouse? What about when I'm diagnosed with cancer? Or what about when someone we love is the victim of a terrible crime? Should we thank God when we hear about terrorists blowing up innocent people? Doesn't God Himself hate sin? How can we thank Him for that? Here's what I would say. We should never thank God for the sin that He hates. We should never thank God for the sin that He hates. We should hate it too. Scripture clearly says that we are to grieve and to mourn over tragedies. We are to do that. But, while we recognize that God is not the author of evil, we can thank Him that even evil is a part of all things. That He works together for good to His chosen ones, even in those things. God uses trials to produce perseverance, character, and hope in His people. So while we may not thank God for evil deeds or for things such as sickness and death and natural disasters, which are the result of the fall, by the way, we can thank Him in the midst of these trials as we look to His promises and the hope of heaven. That's what encourages us. Number three, being filled with the Spirit results in submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The subject of verse 21, I think, is quite clear. It's the subject of submission. First, Submission is stated generally, and then it's applied specifically. As we'll go through this, the remainder of Ephesians, it's applied to marriage, the family, and to the workplace. Verse 21 kind of serves as a topic phrase to introduce God's instruction for our marriage, chapter 5, 
verses 22 through 33, instruction for children and parents, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and directions for how we are to conduct ourselves in the workplace, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. In order to submit, we need to know what? If you're like me, I want to know what that means. I want to know what that means. Originally, the word was a military term, and it means to arrange or to rank yourself under. Now let me ask you this. Those who have been in the military, good soldiers do what? You submit, right? You fall in line. You arrange yourself under the order. A good soldier, a good sailor, a good marine... If you're in the Air Force or the Coast Guard, they turn loose of their selfish agendas and they live in submission. They put themselves under rank. They acknowledge the need to arrange, to place themselves under someone who's above them in some way. Now let me ask you this. Why do they do that? They do it for the good of others. That's why our military is so important. That's why we should respect them and honor them because they are submitting themselves for who? Those of us sitting here today. They submit their lives. They put themselves under the order and rank of someone else for the good of others. (coughs) By the way, this word submission, this idea of submission, listen to me, it shows up 40 times in the New Testament. Now, who do we know in the Bible who gives us the perfect example of submission? Sunday school answer, Jesus. He submitted Himself to God the Father. Matthew chapter 6, excuse me, 26 verse 29. What did Jesus say there? Not my will, but Your will, Father. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. Summarize it. Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So it is with us, the Christian. All Spirit-filled Christians submit to others in the body of Christ. Notice the words there, submit to who? One another. Spirit-filled Christians rank themselves under one another. The idea is that of yielding to another person. And submission is done for the good of others. Submitting is seeking the welfare of others before your own. Being submissive, excuse me, is a result of being filled with the Spirit. God's instruction is here, submit to one another. Notice what it says. Here's the key. Out of reverence for Christ. Why do I do that? Why do I submit myself? It's out of reverence for Christ. That's the motive. Some of you have translations that read, in the fear of God or in the fear of Christ. Why should we submit to others? We should... We submit, excuse me, to others because Jesus is the ultimate authority over our lives. And that's part of our problems as Christians. We don't understand that. We submit to others because Jesus is the ultimate authority over our lives. Now this doesn't mean that Christians live in terror of Jesus. It means that they stand in awe of Him and they say, He's my King. He is my Lord. I think it would go without saying, but a lot of times I find myself in this position, and I know you do as well. Christian, you belong to Jesus, and you belong to His kingdom. You no longer belong to yourself. He's your king. 
out of reverence for Him, you should gladly submit to His rule and submit to His Word and submit to others. Let me finish by saying this. In this case you're wondering, this is not the end of submission. It's coming in week, more weeks to come. You're going to hear this word submission show up again. But here's what I want to help you apply this idea of submission. I know this because I'm one of you. Our fallen nature is not inclined towards submission, is it? We don't like that. Even as believers, we have a strong tendency to resist authority. Yes. So what do we do? We must first and foremost bow before Jesus as Lord. When we fear Him, then we can more easily submit to the various areas of human authority that He has put in place for our good. Did you hear that? If you submit to Jesus as Lord, it will help you submit to other areas in your life that Jesus has put in place of people being in authority over you. The reason that some Christians have a hard time submitting to others is because they have yet to submit their lives to Jesus. I call those, I've got my ticket to heaven and that's all I'm worried about. I'll live my life and do what I want to. That's the problem. You've not submitted your life to Jesus and therefore you can't submit to others. And I want to say this out of a time of personal privilege here. I want to say this as your leader, as your pastor. Someone who's been given authority by God to lead the church. When those in authority live in the fear of Christ, they will not abuse their authority. They will exercise authority and they will follow God's word in love and out of a desire to seek the highest good of those that are under their control, under their authority. And here's why I say that. Because I know that one day I will give an account to the judge of all the world for what I do. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. So I view leadership not as an opportunity of personal advantage, but as a serious responsibility to be carried out in the fear of Christ for the good of others and for the advance of God's kingdom. And here's one last point of application. Are you a submissive person? Think about that. Am I a submissive person? More importantly, are you submitting daily to Jesus as Lord of everything in your life? Everything in your life. If you're filled with the Spirit, your relationships should be marked by joyful submission to others out of a fear of Christ. Let's pray.